1: Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where me and my brother John give you dubious advice, answer your questions, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. And man, is the Mars news good this week. Oh, big Mars news week, Hank. uh, But I would
0: argue an even bigger AFC Wimbledon uh, news week. You know what uh, we found uh, in South London at AFC Wimbledon Stadium? You will not believe this. Well, maybe you should save it for the news. Occasionally, Hank. Not all the time, but occasionally, there is flowing water in King's Meadow in South London, AFC Wimbledon's uh, stadium.
1: Uh, they probably should level the field.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Oh, boy, it's exciting. It's exciting. All right, John, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, you know, how am I doing? I don't know. I'm I'm working on a story, and I'm trying to stay in the story and, and hit a word count every day, and so it's a little bit disorienting to try to interact with the with the regular world. But I'm <laughs> I'm on the whole doing well. I can't. I've been writing a lot down by the river, That's um, nice. which has been lovely. And uh, it's just beautiful here in Indianapolis. Ever since Taylor Swift left uh, a few weeks ago, she she left, but the weather that she brought has stayed. Uh, It's almost like as long as we can hold on to the memory of the magic night of Taylor Swift's concert here in Indianapolis, um, winter will never come.
1: (laughs) How are you? Uh, I'm fantastic. I... Launched a Wizard School Kickstarter yesterday. I'm making a game. It's called Wizard School. And when I say yesterday, I mean yesterday as of the recording, not as of, as of the uploading of this podcast. Um, and uh, it's going very well, and I'm very excited, and it's kind of taking over my life and has been for a while, but at least now it's taking over my life, and I can talk about it, which is exciting. Yeah, it's a really
0: cool card game. Um, I have not played it yet, but I was one of your first 10 Kickstarter backers. Oh, thank you um, for that. I just... I, I am amazed by your ability to continue to make stuff. Um, and I know that you love card games, so I'm psyched that um, that you get to finally make one. And I love, like, the idea of a wizard school that is not so Hogwartsian, that's, like, more like a normal high school that just happens to have a lot of people with uh, special powers. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, it, you're going about your daily lives, and sometimes it's going to be a normal school thing that you might expect. And sometimes it's going to be a score pelican that's loose in the school, and it's it's affecting everybody's magical abilities, and and uh, you have to either kill it or uh, you know do do a number of other things. It's there's a lot of choice involved in the game, um, you know, like a lot of things that you, and then sometimes the game forces you to do things, and and uh, and then there's a lot of. Uh, for me, when I'm playing the game, it's a lot about card management and figuring out, like, okay, I could do this, but do I want to? Do I want to save this for a better time? And It's very—it's a lot of tension. It's really fun, and I'm excited uh, to to be doing this.
0: Yeah, so you can go to Kickstarter and check out uh, uh, the Wizard School uh, card game that Hank has uh, invented with some of his friends. Um, the first project from Hank's new company, DFTB8 Games. Just go to Kickstarter.com and search for Wizard School. Uh, I, I am genuinely excited about this, Hank. I don't talk about your projects that I think are uh, less cool. Um, <laughs> I just ignore them completely. But I think this one is great. Um, I would say that your two greatest achievements as an entrepreneur, uh, number one, 2D glasses, of course. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, that, that render three-dimensional movies in a crisp two dimensions. And then number two, ahead of VidCon, this uh, card game I haven't played yet.
1: All right. Uh, well, I actually am excited that I made 2D glasses because The Martian is coming out uh, very soon and will have come out by the time this podcast uploads. And it's in 3D, and I want to see it in 3D, but Catherine does not. And so I'm going to bring her with me, but she's going to get to watch it in 2D. <laughs> Hank, would you like a short poem for today? Uh, is, your, is your short poem about 2D glasses? It is not. It is about grief. Okay, sure. Sorry
0: to ruin your day. It's by <laughs> Raymond Carver. It's called *Grief*. Woke up early this morning and from my bed looked far across the strait to see a small boat moving through the choppy water, a single running light on. Remembered my friend who used to shout his dead wife's name from hilltops around Perugia, who set a plate for her at his simple table long after she was gone, and opened the windows so she could have fresh air. Such display I found embarrassing. So did his other friends. I couldn't see it. Not until this morning. Grief by Raymond Carver. I love that poem. Really uh, gets, me, gets me like just below the solar plexus.
1: Mm. That's a soft spot.
0: I can tell that you prefer the funny poems.
1: <laughs> I, w- I was a little bit unable to keep the train of thought on that one.
0: My, my dog was being cute. Can I tell you a poem uh, that I think is quite funny that's two lines long by Ogden Nash? Okay, sure. I think it's actually four lines long. Candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker.
1: That is; Those are some short lines, if that's a four-line poem.
0: Yeah, I thought you would like that one, because it's funny. But maybe you're just paying attention to your dog instead of listening to me.
1: I did. I know Dark. I did. I did. I liked it. I've heard it before. In fact, I didn't ever consider it so much a poem as <laughs> something people say. <laughs> Hank, should we answer some questions from our beloved listeners? Let's do that. We've got one from Sienna who asks, Dear Hank and John, I've recently joined the Model UN at my high school. I'm super excited but kind of nervous. I've never been ashamed of being a nerd, but I was wondering how to not be pressured or hurt when people make fun of you doing nerdy things. I know being a nerd is wonderful and uh, you should embrace embrace your nerdiness, but high school is hard and scary and full of peer pressure.
0: Uh, So... Before we get to uh, Sienna's excellent question, Hank, I just have to tell you that I was in the Model UN in high school. For those who don't know, the Model UN is a, uh, mm. it's a thing where uh, young people pretend to be in the United Nations, pretend to represent certain countries, and uh, have sort of a model United Nations. And um, I, I was a really bad Model UN person. Um, I thought one of my problems in high school was that I wasn't able to, like, empathetically imagine what it was like to be anyone else other than myself. So it was really difficult for me to, like, be totally... Told to play the role of, um, you know, whatever country I was being told to play the role of. And my most memorable uh, model UN uh, tournament or whatever it was called, I was Turkey. Um, and I really liked uh, the, the girl who was Russia. Uh, she was great. She was funny. She was really smart. She had lots of good ideas. And so I co-sponsored a lot of her resolutions because I thought they were just excellent. Even like she would be like, I think that 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 Russia, which at the time was a, was a new nation that had emerged out of the Soviet Union, should have access to some Turkish ports. And I was like, you know, that's not a bad idea. Why are we <laughs> hogging all of our ports? You know, like it's not we're not... Poor Russia has no warm water ports, and we're just sitting here on the Mediterranean. You know, it's not like we can't share. Uh, so, yeah, I am not the person to tell tell you how to be good at Model UN, but I am really nerdy. So I, I can say something about that. But, Hank, you're even nerdier, so you answer
1: the question. <laughs> I don't—like, I felt that, and I rebelled against try- looking nerdy and, and tried to not look nerdy while also— uh, n- trying to not lose my identity, um, and but like yeah, I think that what I noticed was no matter what skin I put on, no matter what uh, you know clique I was a part of, no one like th- there weren't any because I went to a really big high school. There weren't any that were under the radar. There weren't any that were above everyone else. Everyone made fun of everyone else at my high school um and nobody was cool there may have been some groups that were that were uh, ignored and that was probably the best that you could be but there was there was even like the people who everybody sort of like saw as the popular powerful people in school uh even they got ripped apart uh in in terms of like people tearing them down and i i don't know if that's something that happens only at big schools or if that's something that everybody experiences. But what I've noticed is that it's not it's not about trying to figure out how like how to not get torn down. It's about trying to figure out how to be confident enough in the stuff that you like that it doesn't, you know, ruin your day when it happens.
0: Yeah, and also how to not be a tearer down, but instead to be a builder up. Mm-hmm. Um and I think, you know, if you focus on stuff that you love and stuff that you feel excited and passionate about, um, And, you know, try to not focus so much on that, that, that like fear and negativity that is a huge part of any social order, um, but especially probably uh, high school social orders. Um, I think, I think things get a lot better because um, you love the stuff that you love and, you know, Something about why you love it, and you have friends and uh, lots of other people who like make make your life better, who share some of those interests. And what people outside of that think matters less when you can find that real pleasure and passion in in the stuff that you do.
1: Yeah, and that that's where a lot of that confidence to sort of like to 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 like shrug off a unpleasant interaction comes from when you really. When you really believe in the coolness of the thing, and if somebody else disagrees with that, then that's because they disagree with it. And if they're being mean, that's because they're mean. Nothing wrong with you.
0: Good for you, Hank. I love that answer. We have another question. This one is from a grown-up, Hank, like a proper adult listener of Dear John and Hank. We love our adult listeners. <laughs> There's lots of those. I know. In fact, it's mostly adult listeners. They just I, don't send in as many questions. Yeah. All right. It's, anyway, Hank, the question is from Amber, who writes, Dear John and Hank, marriage is hard work. I love my husband more than anything, but as my career is taking off, I'm traveling for long periods of time, and it's difficult to stay connected and communicate effectively. My husband is extremely happy at his hometown 9-to-5 job, but I work for a large corporation that sends me all over and sometimes requires I work from dawn to dusk. Since both of you seem to travel and work for a large majority of your life, do you have any advice on ways to stay connected while apart? Sorry for the serious topic, but who are we kidding? Your podcast isn't always comedy. (laughs) Thank you, Amber, for your wonderful question. Um, first off, our podcast is hilarious. Um, that Raymond Carver poem that I read earlier uh, today was riotous. I would describe it as riotous. The part where he talked about the dead, the the, the guy opening the um, the window <laughs> so that his dead wife could have air to breathe—it's just ha 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 ha. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, I I think this is a really difficult thing in a lot of marriages is balancing, um, you know, the, the needs of one's career, um, or, you know, the urges uh, one's, one's career ambitions and, uh, business ambitions with one's personal ambitions. Um, and I think a lot of it too is, is for me, a ton of it is being, uh, respectful of, of your partner and their, their choices, And so not trying to uh, judge the person who has a nine to five hometown job, um, not trying to see one or the other of those ways of being um, as better. Um, that can be very difficult when obviously like you, you like your way of being and want to defend it. Um, but I don't think that um, uh, those kind of like defenses of my way is the best way um, necessarily make relationships better. Um, but it's something that I struggle with a lot. And, I, and one of the big reasons that I travel a lot less these days, I mean, Sarah travels a lot for her work with The Art Assignment and I still travel, you know, a, a fair bit. But I used to travel 150 days a year and that was just too much for me because it was difficult for us to stay uh, connected and I just felt like I wasn't as much a part of my family's life as I, as I really needed to be and wanted to be. Um, so I cut way back on travel in the last year and it's been great. I, I But, you know, it seems like Amber, you want to, um, you're in a part of your life and a part of your career where you want to be taking those opportunities and you want to be traveling the world and uh, doing whatever you do, working for that large corporation. And, um, you know, and then you've just got to you've just got to keep the lines of communication open. I have I, I believe that it is basically impossible to have like really high quality uh, conversations uh in a marriage when you got you're on the road and you're just doing like fundamentally different things
1: actually I don't know if I believe that I don't know I should let Hank talk why am I just talking you did yeah I mean you got to most of the points I mean I'm a little concerned uh, when anyone says that they're working dawn to dusk uh, because I I you know I, you know in in the same breath as saying that they're they you know their marriage is the most important thing to them uh, or they love their husband more than anything else. Uh, I, I mean like I, I try so hard to not have the people who work for me do that and sometimes they want to and, and, uh, but like, you know, for me, I don't like, I don't think that like, I try to not ask that of people. And I, I, if I was in a situation where my employer was asking that of me, I would, I would not want to be in that situation, but I, I. Also like, you know, when I am my own boss, I absolutely sometimes work that way. And so like there is there's you know validity to to that and excitement in that and um as long as it's not um personally draining or or draining in your relationships. But yeah, I think John hit most of the important parts of of this, which is like, you know, you guys have to like recognize that both of you want to do a thing and uh and being open and allowing for that is is great. Um and and I, you know, I think doing it while apart is Hard, uh, and so like the best thing you can do is when you're together, have have you know consistent and uh, and. High-quality interactions where you don't have your phone out and you are, you know, talking about how, like, not just what happened, but how you feel about what happened, and and how you feel about life, and how you feel about the place where you live, and um, and how you feel about, you know, the next five, ten years, um, the things that are going to happen to you, and and like the things that the things of deep relationships.
0: Yeah, and taking each other's work and concerns seriously and with, like, yeah. equal seriousness, I think that's really important, like, um, in, in, it, I had this, like, weird period in my career where, like, there were movies being made, and I was like, what did you do today at work? Well, I talked to the Today Show, and, you know, and, and it's easy to, to imagine that, like, that is, like, more interesting or more important than what someone else did, um, And if you do that, it's you're doomed. (laughs) If you start to believe that, I really think you're doomed. Mm -hmm. And like, I felt like I almost had to pull back from some of that stuff um, because otherwise it was just like I was going to start to believe that 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 stuff was inherently more important and more interesting than like, you know, uh, Henry going to soccer practice. Like the other day I took Henry to his soccer game and uh it was a great he played great. I know that you're curious, Hank. Um he played amazingly. The kid is just he's gonna he's a future star of AFC Wimbledon. But um after the game, uh, he was, like, going through every single time he touched the ball, and I realized that, like, to Henry, it was incredibly important. Like, it was as important to him as an AFC Wimbledon game is to me, um, and that I really needed to, like, listen to him and try to treat, treat it seriously, even though it's five-year-old soccer and, like, they're all, you know, technically <laughs> horrible. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I would say, Hank, is I'm a big fan of Google Hangouts. Like, I believe in
1: looking someone in the eye. I think it just makes a difference. We've been on this question a long time, but I want to add one last thing, which is that uh, we have many projects in our life. And John was just saying, like, how do you, like, Hank has so many things and he does all the things. And, Uh, And I think that it is important to not think of your relationships in your life as something that just happened and that are there, but that are continuous projects that you are working on, and and in, in many ways the most important projects in my life are my relationships and I want to cultivate them and I want to build them and I want them to be interesting and different just in the same way that I want to cultivate and make interesting and different and successful my businesses. So like, like just in the same way that I want to focus on my career, I think that it like focusing on relationships as a project and like focusing on, you know, child rearing as a project, like obviously making it like creating a human is probably the biggest project that, people ever engage in you know any individual I don't care if it's Elon Musk or if it's John Green or if it's you know you like like those things that we do like that's how the next like it's not just that's like you know this is something that we're building for people this is like we're creating the next generation of people and without that there would be no more people
0: anymore um yeah it is overwhelmingly the most important part of my life and the most important um uh, kind of project in my life is my is my family. Um, now I'm very lucky that like for me, you know, Hank is part of my family, and we get to collaborate together on a lot of work stuff, and that feels like both work and family stuff. But um, there's also a lot of like private family mm-hmm. stuff in my life. Um, you know, I don't talk a ton about my kids or my marriage, and but that's by far the most important thing. I mean, there's yeah, and I think you have to remember that it's it's hard to prioritize, um, particularly. You know, because there can be some excitement and um, and intrigue and kind of joltiness around, um, around work and professional success, and you get a lot of outside encouragement and outside affirmation. But uh, for me, at least, like... The family um, the family projects, those have to be
1: in the very, very center of things. All right, John, we got another question. This one is from Numaira, who says, Dear Hank and John, I'm finding it harder and harder to form an opinion of a lot of compelling political problems in the world because I keep imagining complexly. My opinion keeps getting split both ways. What do you think I should do about that? Oh, Numaira, I think you should celebrate. Yeah, that's great news, Numaira. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, it might make it harder to figure out who to vote for, but that means that you are that most valuable and interesting of, uh, of, of constituents, the swing voter.
0: Yeah. No, we need more swing voters. We need more, like, high-interest really dedicated,
1: knowledgeable, thoughtful swing voters. Mm -hmm. People who don't know which way to vote despite knowing lots of things. And to some people that might sound uh, completely impossible. If you are educated, then you must know. But look... 50% 50% of America votes one way and 50% votes the other way. I mean, not exactly, obviously, but pretty much. And so what you're saying is, I, if you're if you're educated, then you're definitely gonna fall on one of those two sides? No, you're gonna, like, some people are gonna fall in the middle. And I often find myself thinking, uh, you know, like, if I'm really paying attention not to the news and not to the, you know, not to Reddit, not to the blogs I follow, but to what candidates are saying, I will occasionally be like, yes, no, that makes sense, when I'm listening to someone who on other subjects I'm like, you need to pull your head out of your butt, sir. Because that is an inexcusable way to think, and it's uh, it's interesting that I could think that way about a person, that some of their ideas are, are good and some are bad, but of course you can, because that's how people are.
0: Yeah, we have such a personality-driven political culture, and I understand why that's valuable and good in a lot of ways, but we never talk about actual policy. Like, we so rarely talk about actual policy positions, you know? we're constantly having these arguments about the underlying ideologies, but like, let's talk about what you would actually do. Um, and I think when you talk about what we, what you would actually do, you find that a lot more people are, are, are swing voters, um, you know, and, right. But so I think that, well, if, if we focus on policy, then you do see that this is, it, it's not as black and white and it's, it, it, it becomes a lot more of an interesting conversation. Now, political candidates are reluctant for many reasons to focus on policy for one thing i don't think they think that it gets them votes but also um you know it puts them in the position of likely breaking campaign promises down the road but i think um i think that when you focus on that when you focus on like what people are actually proposing and what the implications of it are uh the conversations can get a lot more interesting and also less like heated and rhetorical yes Okay, Hank, this question is from Katie, who writes, Dear John and Hank, after struggling for a few years out of college, I finally managed to find a full-time job. Congratulations, Katie. I'm grateful to be able to support myself, but it's for a business market I think is pretty morally ambiguous. How do I help myself justify going to work every day supporting something I don't believe in? Oh, that's a big one. Oh, boy. The first thing that I would say is that every business is a little morally ambiguous, right? <laughs> like, I yep. I try very hard, um, and I know Hank tries very hard to to create an environment here where we're working on, you know, Crash Course and sci-show and Mental Floss Video and Art Assignment, like stuff that people can feel really passionate and good about, Um but make no mistake, lots of things about my work are morally problematic, like um, there's a lot of things about the book business, um, for instance, that are that really trouble me, particularly some of the business practices of the largest uh, booksellers in, in the country, Walmart, Target, and uh, Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that it is alarming that those are our three largest bookstores in the U.S., but they are. Um, and I... And, and yet, I still believe in writing novels and I still and I still go to work. Um, that said, like that's so I, I don't want you to think that there's some like uh, shimmering city on a hill out there where um, you know you can work in a field that's that's totally removed from any kind of like uh, ethical problem. But like one of my good friends uh, is a rocket engineer who is uh, designing um, engines for um, warplanes. And that is very troubling to him, and I definitely understand why it is troubling to him, and I don't have an easy answer for that, so hopefully Hank will.
1: You know, I don't know any specifics, Katie, of, of where you're working, what you're doing. I, you know, if, you, if you're working for a drug kingpin, killing people? then I would definitely be concerned. Mm-hmm. But if you're working for, you know, Walmart as a, uh, as a, as like a, uh, you know, logistics person, how to get food to one place to, from one place to another, like, you know, Walmart is troubling in some ways, but it is also, uh, it also solves problems. And there's a reason why Walmart is successful. And there's a reason why people go, you know, like w- there's a reason why people work at Walmart. There's a people, a reason why people go and shop at Walmart. Um, and, you know, the, there's definitely, I think you should probably ask Numaira about this uh, because she might, or he—I'm—I'm I'm guessing she, because it ends in an A—would uh, have a uh, a good a good set of thoughts on, uh, you know, like the, you know, the ambiguity of it. Like there, there is good being done and there's bad being done. And the question always is, is the good outweighing the bad? And like, I, as a person who is, you know, really, really concerned about climate change, hate the fact that I get on a plane like once a month to go to a place to have a business meeting or to like hang out with family or, uh, you know, to go to to LA to talk to a bunch of my YouTuber friends, um... You know, that is troubling to me. And, you know, when I ask myself, is this, you know, is it worth the, you know, adding to the tremendous problem that we are going to have to face of climate change? I'm never quite sure. And like, and and that's just a, like, mo- moral ambiguity is part of, I think, being uh, a human, definitely part of being a human in today's society. So, um, yeah, the other thing that I would say is that a lot of times you don't have... Uh, good choices,
0: you know, (laughs) like, uh, it's not your fault if you don't have good choices in this situation. And like, it's, 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 it's an easy choice to make if you're choosing between, you know, um, uh, jobs that pay the same amount and allow you to take care of yourself and your family. Um, where, where one is, you know, like, uh, doing, uh, development work, um, somewhere in an underserved community. And the other is like, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, murderer for a drug kingpin but like <laughs> the, the truth is that like almost all of us like live in the middle and we have limited choices and you you have to make like the best choices that you can make um while still uh, acknowledging the fact that you have to take care of yourself so i think it's more of like a spectrum than it is an easy yes or no i'm reminded of the uh, great resignation letter that the novelist william faulkner wrote to the united states postal service when he um when he quit his job um uh, working for the post office in Mississippi Hank, are you familiar with this letter no well uh this letter is is the the best advice i can I can uh, give I guess because um It acknowledges the fact that uh, we are all going to be influenced by capitalism, but also acknowledges that, at least in Faulkner's case, a a limit had been reached. This is the letter in its entirety. As long as I live under the capitalistic system, I expect to have my life influenced by the demands of moneyed people. But I will be damned if I propose to be at the beck and call of every itinerant scoundrel who has two cents to invest in a postage stamp. This, sir, is my resignation.
1: Um, my last piece of advice for Katie is that uh, is to not lose sight of the moral ambiguity. To know that it's there, and as you rise, uh, as you have more career opportunities, as you're able to do more, as you have access to more resources, recognize that there are other things that you could do, or inside or outside of your organization to to make those places to make those organizations better. Um, and like, because really you know. We talk a lot about how capitalism is the thing that uh, that drives everything in America, but it is really a, a mix of both capitalism and human culture that are the the uh, the, the thing that shapes what this country is, uh, and and like the fact that this you know this weird um, you know divorced from reality uh, market thing has such a massive effect is kind of can be terrifying, but um, but it really it cannot. It cannot make us make decisions. Uh, we make decisions, and every you know every decision, everything that a corporation does is a decision made by a human being. Um, and so, like, uh, be a good human being, even if you are in a place where the thing that uh, that you know you might not believe in the thing that that uh, your company is doing. Be a good human being within that, and that uh, that will that that can change.
0: So we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr. Pepper. The off-brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is, of course, your Health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and Compare highly rated in-network doctors near you ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. Hank, I think we have to move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Uh, I think that we'll do the news from AFC Wimbledon first because from what I understand, it was a big week on Mars. Um, Now, Hank, you may remember that in uh, 2011... The AFC Wimbledon, having risen from the ninth tier of English football, was on the cusp of returning to the football league, the full-time professional um, football league. So the top four leagues in England are full-time professional teams, and then below that it's amateur, semi-pro, a couple professional teams, but mostly uh, sort of varying degrees of amateur. Uh, that fifth tier, the one that you have to win or finish, uh, or, or win the playoffs in to get to, uh, to get to League Two, which is the, the bottom rung of the, the football league, um, is, is called the Conference, uh, or it was at the time anyway, and AFC Wimbledon made it to the last game, the playoff final, and they were playing Luton Town, And it was a nil-nil draw at the end of 90 minutes. There was 30 minutes of extra time. Then it was still a nil-nil draw. And then there was a shootout. And 19-year-old Seb Brown, the goalkeeper for AFC Wimbledon, saved two penalties. Uh, Danny Kedwell... The 33-year-old journeyman who'd never played a game in the football league in his life scored the decisive penalty, AFC Wimbledon's captain. He ran to the fans who own AFC Wimbledon together collectively. It was an amazing, amazing moment. AFC Wimbledon were back in the football league after the horrors that had befallen them at the beginning of the century. It was one of the greatest moments in sports history. Well, a couple years later, Luton Town got promoted to the football league as well. So now Luton Town and AFC Wimbledon are in the same league, and they just played their first game against each other since that magical night in Manchester when uh, AFC Wimbledon were promoted to the league Um and Luton Town won and AFC Wimbledon lost <laughs> let's move on to the news from
1: Mars oh man uh, well uh, that was some really long brief news John <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, yeah so so first I want to say that uh, as of the release of this podcast The Martian is in theaters I haven't seen it yet because as of the recording of this podcast it isn't out yet uh, I'm very excited about it though and I'm probably going to like it, and so you should go see it. Uh, that's kind of Mars news, but in addition, there's an, some actual very exciting Mars news, which is that uh, they have, uh, they, we, really, the human race, has found that there is uh, super salty flowing water on the surface of Mars. It's it's uh, not like a river, it's more like a sort of trickles through wet sand, uh, kind of muddy stuff. It's coming out of really steep, uh, you know, cliff sides, uh, craters, gla- uh, and and uh, and valleys, and it's uh, the the big question is, you know, where is this stuff coming from? And the the you know most. Obvious potential answer is that it is in fact flowing out of uh, liquid water that is below the surface of Mars. Now there are some other potential mechanisms for this, but it's probably that there is a lot of liquid water below the surface of Mars, and it just happens that in these places and in these particular circumstances, uh, it's able to flow out and persist for a large amount of time on the surface. So there's a lot of water on Mars, and it turns out that it it isn't just ice. There's there's quite a lot of liquid water on Mars, and that is very exciting. Um, you know, it, it doesn't change how uh, how livable the planet is to us, because we could, you know, there's always been ice there that we could turn into water, uh, but it does change the potential uh, for existing Martian biologies and ecologies, which is uh, exciting, because boy, if we found life somewhere else, and that life was substantially different from life here on Earth, now of course it might be that life was seeded from Earth to Mars or from Mars to Earth, and, uh, and, and the life will be actually very similar. But if it was a completely new set of biology that was based on different chemicals and different, like no DNA and no proteins, but a, a, a different kind of building block, that would be the kind of science... That would just be unthinkable to do right now, to, to be able to observe that, to be able to understand and, uh, and, and put that puzzle together would be one of the great endeavors of humanity. And so it's the kind of thing that people get really excited about. and Wait, uh, wait, wait, and wait for wait, good wait, reasons. Wait. wait, wait yes. Wait, wait, wait. What?
0: You're telling me that all, all human all, all life on Earth is, is DNA RNA-based, right? Correct. And you're saying that it's possible that Martian life is not DNA or RNA based, that it's completely separate, that it evolved completely separate and, and that it might be totally different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like the, what, that's... like, like how Oh, uh, we don't know. That's the thing. We can't imagine uh, another system because the system that we have is so ridiculously cool and complex and took us so long to even figure out how our system works. And we have it all around us to be examining and understanding, uh, whereas trying to come up w- from scratch with another another way to have life work is uh, is difficult. Is not that's that's hard. Um, and and so like that. What that's one of the you know really exciting things about uh, you know you know Mars and Europa that we could like observe not just life somewhere else but life that is like because if if life happened somewhere else it would not be based on the exact same system as us like that the you know it it you know I, my guess is that uh that our you know the way that our RNA and DNA function is an accident of chemistry um it's just the way that it happened to happen for the first life form on earth and if it had happened a different way, then all of us would be very, very different, not just, uh, you know, not just chemically, but, you know, physically. Uh, and in different places where, different, where there's different chemistry, different, uh, different temperatures, different pressures, different stuff in the water, um, then you might see a completely different set of chemistries that would define the life. All right, that's pretty
0: cool, actually. That's kind of exciting.
1: No, oh God, it's very exciting. I mean, even if there's no life involved, it's very exciting because getting to observe... A different a hydrology and a geology that's based on different chemistry and on different amounts of gravity, on different like different atmospheres, different chemicals in the crust. Uh, you know the fact that like Mars probably like doesn't have a liquid core, but probably still has magma somewhere underneath the surface because the re- most recent volcanic eruptions were very recent. Like there's a lot like just having a second sample. You know we have the Earth and we can study the Earth, but Mars is very different, and so getting to getting like the the fact that we get to have you know we could do like increase our sample size from one to two that's pretty massive in terms of studying anything and so like you know hydrologists and geologists of the world may be a little bit less exciting for the average human but like those people are like uh that is it is the most exciting thing in the world that that there gets to be another world for us to study can we back up a little
0: you mentioned something about Europa, what is Europa? I know the Europa League Europa, in 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 Europe is like if you're not quite good enough to get into the Champions League, like Liverpool is, then you play in the Europa League. Is it similar or is it different? <laughs> uh,
1: it is different. Europa is a moon of Jupiter, uh, and tell me more about tell me more about this moon. Uh, uh, Europa is uh, made of ice, probably entirely. So it's just a big ball of ice. And below the surface, because of okay. tidal pressures from Jupiter, it is liquid ice. So, water.
0: Oh, so it's like got an icy crust, but then there's some
1: warm ice yeah, underneath. There's a giant massive subsurface ocean on, on Europa, and, uh, and we would very much like to, to be there and to check it out. Uh, because like, it's literally like probably the, the water of Europa, if you were under the surface and you had swimming, a swimming tank, like it would be awesome. It would be like, you just be like, you know, 80 degree water. Really? Yeah. I mean, there, there would be areas of the, of the planet where it would be much hotter and much colder than that, but there would be, you know, bands of, uh, of, you know, perfectly tropical feeling water.
0: Can I ask a couple stupid questions? Um, yes, sir. Why is Europa's water warm when Europa itself is so far from the sun?
1: Uh, Europa's water is warmed by tidal pressures from uh, Jupiter. So as it goes around Jupiter and spins, uh, the uh, Jupiter actually like stretches the planet out a little bit, and that causes a friction, and that friction is transferred into heat, which... Uh, which uh, basically makes the entire surface of Europa look like this weird puzzle piece thing. And it has like these big cracks and rifts in it because it's basically has like plate tectonics because it's the solid crust on top of the liquid, uh, the liquid water inside. That's kind of cool. It's super cool. But
0: we couldn't live on Europa because there's no land.
1: We could live in Europa if we wanted to be inside of... uh, submarines all the time we could also live on europa if we wanted to be inside of uh you know controlled habitats as well okay like floaty controlled habitats
0: or just like how they do it on on in antarctica where they build like a thing on an on a island device
1: yeah i mean it would have to be a little more advanced than that you'd have to it'd have to be airtight there's no atmosphere on europa as far as i know
0: Mm, okay
1: you know where we could also just stay here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I wouldn't suggest going to live on Europa uh, unless, like, we run out of like we really run out of resources and space. But, um, but I would definitely want people to be there to do science on Europa. I don't think that it's a. A place to go to chit chill.
0: Yeah, no, I mean you've you've. I have to say, Hank, you've kind of gotten me excited. I did not. I did not get that into this Mars news, but now you've got me excited thinking about um, the idea that life could have fundamentally different building blocks elsewhere than it does here. That's pretty mind blowing. Indeed, it is not, however, as mind blowing as that moment when Seb Brown, a virtual child took 5600 people's lives in their hands went the wrong way on a penalty and then held up his huge glove his right hand it was almost like i don't i don't believe that that it was supernatural like obviously i don't think that god has an interest in the f- outcome of football games but it felt that way when his hand reached up the wrong way and just got enough of the ball and then his celebration was just immense and then i mean the weeping these 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 grown men and women who'd had their football team taken away from them by this, you know, just corrupt organization and then built it from scratch. And then just the, them dissolving into tears as they realized that they were back in the football league, that they had a professional team, that there was going to be football in Wimbledon. It was amazing. You know, so, like, lots of things are amazing.
1: Lots of things are amazing. And I want to say that Europa, I said that it was a ball of water. It is, in fact, a, mostly a ball of rock, uh, but with a with a uh, full, full water covering over it. I had that wrong. So I corrected myself before next week.
0: Uh, I feel like you might not have been listening to me when I was talking about how great Seb Brown's second penalty save was. Well, you know, I've heard the story before. Oh, boy. Today's podcast is brought to you by Europa. Europa is made of ice, possibly
1: rock. (laughs) Today's podcast, John, is brought to you by Children's Soccer Games. They're a a monument to uh, understanding value in human psychology. And, of course, today's podcast is brought to you
0: by the nation of Turkey. The nation of (laughs) Turkey, inexplicably friendly with Russia. Oh, Russia sure is cute. (laughs) They're just... They couldn't be any sweeter. Um, <laughs> Hank, what did we learn today before we uh, we, we, we
1: depart for the
0: fair shores?
1: Uh, we learned that... Uh the American swing voter is in great need of cultivation and uh, and appreciation. We
0: learned that marriage is hard work and the most important work uh, in many people's lives. We learned that all businesses, John, are morally ambiguous. And, of course, we learned that there is occasionally flowing water on Mars, as long as you define flowing and water very generously. <laughs>
1: it's, it's water. It's, it's just... Just like the ocean is water, it's just salty water, and it's not salt. It's saltier to, than the ocean.
0: To be clear, at some it isn't... point it stops being at some point it stops being water, and it just becomes wet salt.
1: Yeah, that is kind of true. They call it the, they call it hydrated perchlorates, uh, and mm-hmm. and w- people tend to think when you say salty water, they're like, oh, like the ocean. So if I put it in my mouth, it would taste salty. But salts are any ionic compound, and the salt in question is not sodium chloride. It is. Uh, magnesium, calcium, perchlorate, uh, different perchlorates, which are not good, and you don't want them in your mouth.
0: Do not put Martian salt in your mouth. Do not put that in your face. <laughs> One more lesson from a comedy podcast by two brothers.
1: Thanks for listening. Our podcast is edited by Nick Jenkins. Uh, the theme music is from Gunnarola. If you want to send us questions, you can do that at Dear Hank and nope, at John at gmail.com. No dear, just Hank and at gmail.com. And as we say in our hometown, Don't Don't forget forget to to be awesome.